If you'll turn with me in your Bibles, the words will be printed on the screen. This is going to be Acts 6 and Acts 7. In 6, it'll be 8 through 15, and 7, it'll be 51 through 59. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians, and the Alexandrians, and the Cilicia, and those from Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was glowing like the face of an angel. And now down to chapter 7 at 51. And Stephen said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know how many of you saw that, uh, <clears throat> the ending of that game last night between Ole Miss and Tennessee, but you might uh, be interested to know that that's not the first experience that we have recorded of um, fanaticism at a sporting event. Uh, it, it turns out that there was an event over 150 years ago, 1879, in Australia over a cricket match between England and New South Wales. Apparently, the uh, referee, George Cotard, had made a controversial call on the Australian batsman, uh, Billy Murdoch, and the fans rushed the field, uh, 2,000 of them, as a matter of fact. Now, miraculously, no one was killed during the experience, but it still remains one of the largest and most violent sports games in all of Australian cricket history. And I'm fascinated by these stories. I was mesmerized last night, well into the late hours, of course, because you, you get to a certain point in these games where you think to yourself, it's just a game. <laughs> it's just a cricket match. What is going on? The, the response often just strikes me as way out of balance with what's going on. Well, it turns out in that Australian cricket match that there was something going on beneath the surface. The first thing was the fact that a lot of the odds makers and illegal gamblers had, had had heavy bets that were placed against England, and they saw the controversial call as an opportunity to stir up, you know, some dissension among the ranks. 
And, and you can even go even deeper than that when you realize that in the late 1800s, there were a lot of uh, what we might call colonial tensions that existed between England and Australia that were just looking for a reason to explode. And so my question is, <clears throat> can you relate to that sort of thing? How many times in your life have you witnessed, or perhaps you've been a participant in, an outburst that in retrospect was just way out of proportion with what happened? In other words, have you ever left wondering to yourself, hmm, <clears throat> you know what, I think there's something else going on here. I know there's many times in my own life where I have stand, stood amazed, dare I say dismayed, um, at my own uh, outburst that I oftentimes inflict on people that I'm closest to. But in the time afterwards where you kind of get a chance to do a post-mortem on your outburst and why you did what you did, you start to realize that what I was really angry about was way different from whatever presented itself. There was something else underneath the surface. I, I think it's part of adulthood and maturity where we're growing to figure out and wait long enough before we react so that we know what we're really angry about. And I'm reminded of this because of what we see in our story here this morning, because it's the story, the famous story, of the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And, and, and oftentimes we're so familiar with Bible stories like this that we miss just how ludicrously extreme this response from the religious elite really was. I mean, think about it. These men level the death penalty at Stephen for what? Because he believed differently than they did? In other words, Stephen Granted was speaking, you know, with some rather frank language to them, but I don't think that the response was anywhere near the proportion to the crime. And of course, the answer is that it emphatically was not in proportion, because what happened to Stephen, I think, is very much like your and I's overreactions when, when, when we get deeply frustrated and realize that there's something deeper going on within us. You know, we like to look at Stephen's executors like, well, those are religious fundamentalists, you know, or, the, or maybe they're mentally unbalanced. I'll let your own mind go, go wherever it will with the fans from University of Tennessee last night. But what's going on with these religious people, though, I think is so much deeper. What if Stephen's sermon went straight to the most foundational and treasure notions that gave these people their sense of meaning? their sense of purpose, even their sense of stability in life. And once Stephen started to poke at that, they unload on him with hyperactive rage. So what you might miss in this simple little fact that Jesus is continuing his mission on earth is that the gospel follows, as it were, a similar trajectory. When God begins to work on us, the gospel is coming, yes, to set us free. But the first winds of that freedom are likely to feel pretty threatening. It might even make you angry. So I want this morning to look at three headings that I want to sort of frame this, this discussion around. First of all, the mob threatened Stephen's testimony and then Jesus' advocacy. That lays it out very nicely, I think. First of all, let's look at this idea of the mobs threatening. Why are they threatened? What is it that stirred up the executioners in the first place? Well, I think we get it right there in verse 13. They start to peddle some trumped-up charges, but they give the primary reason for them being upset when they say this, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place, that's the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Hmm. Now, that's a very interesting charge to lay at Stephen. You want to know why? Because it actually has a teeny tiny ring of truth to it. 
It's absolutely true that in John 2, 19, Jesus did say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Correct. But all you have to do is read two verses later and hear John's explanation of what Jesus meant when he said, but he was speaking about his temple, of, of the temple of his body. Second thing is, all this sort of speaking against Moses' charges, that also has a ring of truth to it. Again, from the Sermon on the Mount, we saw over and over again that Jesus was saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you language in it. But of course, for the people that are listening to Jesus to learn from him and not to entrap him, you would have heard him say in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. So yeah, these were a bunch of flimsy, very trumped up charges. But it begs the question, doesn't it? If, if these charges are so thin, why are they so upset? Well, the answer to that has everything to do with the place that the temple and the law of Moses held inside these people's minds and hearts. And, and in order to sort of get to what that, what that meant to these religious council people, we have to do a little bit of background <clears throat> and make a little connection here. Because the Bible teaches, you've heard me say this before, the Bible teaches that intrinsic to your humanity, that is the thing that makes you, you, is a powerful need to be acceptable, to be right. Or the way one writer I read put it, to be enough. I want to know that what I am is enough. And the way the Bible embodies that urge, that, that natural instinct, is in what the Bible calls a priest. That's what the priests were for, which sounds strange, but it shouldn't sound strange, because a priest was just a go-between. A priest was your representative into the places where you are not enough so that you could plead your case and grant access to wherever you wanted to go. <clears throat> now, mind you, we don't have many priests that sort of function like that in our day, but we all know what it's like to have an urge to be acceptable, do we not? A longing to know that, that, that we're in, that we've got a place in the world. It, it's incredibly strong. <clears throat> My guess is that there's not many of you who have ever wandered onto campus for Greek sorority recruitment, what we used to call rush back in the day. And I, I would invite you to. It's quite the spectacle. All of the potential sort of line out in front of the sorority houses on the sidewalk out there. The big doors come swinging wide open. There are these loud, enthusiastic chants. But then all of a sudden, all of the actives begin to rush out down the pathway, and they're calling out the names of the young potentials. And they grab them by the hand, and they escort them back on inside. Now, you look at that, and you start to think to yourself, that's a bizarre experience. Why would that do that? Why would they do that? Well, simply because a freshman, a recruit, they can't just go waltzing up into the house. That place is for members. That place is for the acceptable. It's for the initiated. Now look, I found for years this to be a profound illustration of what's going on in every human heart. And you can condescend all you want to the Greek system at Ole Miss, but every one of us has a very deeply rooted insecurity about the things upon which we have built our lives and the fact that we know on the inside that those things are always changing. They're unstable. And so much of the anxiety that I experience is due to those things. For some of us, it's our job. For others of us, it's our sparkling family and their reputation in the community. 
Some of it's, it's a beauty thing. Some of it's, it's a success thing, whatever. We all have something that makes us enough. And to whatever degree we experience, we're grasping at that enough, we're happier, we're depressed. That's how we work. Okay, so for the religious council, though, the temple, that physical structure, was the embodiment of that acceptability. Little children from their earliest of ages would have been told, do you see that building? That's how we know that we're God's people. That's how we know who we are. And by the way, this law of Moses, this code that we live by, or that we tell everybody that we live by, that's what sets us apart from the grimy masses. It was part of their identity. It was their distinctiveness. It was the fact that they were enough. But don't miss the point. When that part of you gets threatened, especially in the way in which these early apostles were preaching against them, you don't think about it with a sense of casual detachment, now do you? <laughs> you get insecure. And usually the way that we deal with insecurity is we get violently angry. <clears throat> you know what you become? You become a fanatic. I did a great little word study on the word fanatic. Turns out it's a French word <clears throat> that used to be, it, it's a trace from a French word that used to mean the word temple. <laughs> Or, or, or another version was inspired by a God. That word fanatic actually originally described behavior that resulted from someone who was possessed by a demon. It's where the phrase, you know, a, a religious maniac came from. That's what's going on with these people. They become fanatical. And the point for us this morning is simply this. The things that you become the most annoyed at and the most angry about, especially when it comes to biblical religion, are very likely because the claims of the Bible have just stuck their thumb on a nerve. And that nerve, <clears throat> we will do just about anything. <laughs> we will make any excuse. We will construct all manner of arguments in order to get that thumb off that nerve. It reminded me of a, of a great quote from Aldous Huxley. Huxley did um, Brave New World, but he also did a book known as Ends and Means. And he was describing, in a moment of honesty, the reason for his philosophy of, of meaninglessness and why it was that he didn't want anything to mean anything. <laughs> Listen to this. He says, I had motives for not wanting the world to have any meaning. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a system of morality. Hmm. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. There was one admirably simple method for confuting these Christians and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would simply deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. <laughs> Do you see what he's saying? In other words, the great rejection, the philosophy of meaninglessness and all of the generations that came after it were not the thing. The anger at Christian claims were not the thing. It was what was underneath it. There were deeper commitments far inside them. They're threatened by the Christian message. Of course, for Huxley, it's his sexual freedom. But for everybody who comes to Christ to investigate the Bible's truth claims, you initially encounter this, this, this very unsettling sensation of having all of these other things. Can we use the word these other priests, right? That we've been living on the basis of, they start to get threatened. They start to crumble around us. And it can be incredibly painful and actually make you feel like you're going crazy. Uh, it reminds me of, of so the, the, the pandemic uh, mega hit, Ted Lasso, um, uh, has a lot of strong language, keeps me from recommending it to you. But 
had a glorious quote in this latest season where Ted, the, the sort of a terminally perky Ted Lasso, ends up going to a therapist for the first time. And in the session prior to this uh, particular scene, uh, Ted said some very uncharitable, unfriendly things to his counselor. And at one point during the lesson, she looks over at him and she says, Ted, the truth is going to set you free, but first it's going to tick you off. She said, I can't be your mentor without occasionally being your tour mentor. <laughs> That's what we're saying is the religious council's behavior is in many ways encouraging us to ask a question. In what ways is the gospel sort of opening up false priests inside of me? And what is God trying to say about those things? Because you can tell what those are by following your anger. What do you get angry about the most easily? Because it's possible that's the Holy Spirit that is pushing against that paper priest you've set up and trying to get you to abandon it and to look to Jesus. Well, as it turns out, that's exactly what Stephen's sermon is about, and it brings me to my second point. And that is Stephen's testimony, right? Stephen's saying that in the, in the end, what the gospel's trying to do is to set you free from those paper priests. So it says that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. His face is shining, and he starts to preach. Hey, by the way, the last time we have in the Bible of someone's face shining was Moses when he came down from Sinai. Do you remember that? When Moses' face shone. Luke is doing something very subtle there. He's trying to say, Stephen's about to tell you what Moses was really about. He's drawing that connection between them almost certainly. And so you get chapter 7 of the book of Acts, which is the longest recorded sermon we have in the entire book. And of course, we don't have time to go through every bit of it line by line. But suffice to say that, that Stephen does not deal with the trumped-up charges that are against him. He doesn't spend time on that argument. What he does is, is he starts to look at the heart issue that are underneath their accusations. But I do find it interesting that, Jesus, that, that what Stephen begins to do is he begins to sort of take on the function of a priest. Think about it. He's coming there so that he can expose these people. Why? Because without so, you're never ready to meet God. You're not ready to meet God until those early commitments are exposed. And as brutal as the confrontation sounds, Stephen's simply trying to be a priest for them by saying the hard things to them. What does he say? Well, the first thing he says to him to sum up that first really three-fourths of the sermon is he's saying, look, you've got all this emotion built up in this temple, this great structure. But you've got to understand, that temple can't contain God. It never has contained God, not with Abraham, Moses, or David. The purpose of that temple was not for you to elevate it to this spiritually essential level. And in so doing, what Stephen says is you have localized God. You've made him to be contained here. And that is a problem. Why? Well, because the temple can become an idol as soon as you sort of shrink God and make him manageable. Stephen's saying, look, if God has any home on the earth, it's with his people whom he has covenanted to love and to cherish. Now, here's the deal, though. The problem, though, of localizing God, of making him to be manageable, somebody that we can manipulate into having life the way we want it, it still exists. C.S. Lewis, I thought, depicted this the best in, um, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the little scene where, where the children have a dinner with uh, Mr. and Miss Beaver, and at one point, little Lucy finds out that this great Aslan they've been talking about is a lion. And Lucy was like, uh, 
I don't know if I want to meet a lion. I mean, you know, is he safe? Mr. Beaver looks at him and says, safe? <laughs> Who says anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king. In other words, what, 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 what C.S. Lewis is saying through that scene is that you can't make God manageable. And so Stephen levels these curses to them to say, God is not contained in your temple. You've not figured him out. Aslan is always on the move. And when he's moving, he's going to challenge every assumption that you've made about him from his word. Whether it's Abraham, Moses, David, or Solomon, God cannot be manipulated by you. And the ultimate blasphemy, if you really think about it, is trying to finesse God in such a way to make him like you, but on your terms. That's the sin. That's the sin of the religious elite, and ours as well. What Stephen's saying is, is you have to have a true priest, a true priest. The temple was meant to point to it, not to function as it. So that's how he deals with the temple. The second thing he goes after is the law of Moses. Look at verse 51 through 53. This is where things start to get tense. He says, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Stephen, Stephen's oratory here is amazing because he says, look, you found a code of conduct out there where the good people are in and the bad people are out. By the way, that's not the way that God deals with people, but set that aside for a second. This whole law that you've set up, you're not even following it yourself. You don't keep it. You're placing yokes on other people's backs that you don't keep yourself. And all of a sudden you realize that what Stephen has done is he has pulled the rug out from under these people's very stability. The only way to explain the forthcoming outburst in these people is to realize they've had everything kicked out from under them. And they are enraged by it. They're terrified. There's something else going on beneath the surface. Is there not? Stephen wants them to be set free. Now, it's very interesting. Before we move to the last point, though, Stephen cannot stop, though, but preach the gospel, can he? Did you notice the title that he used for Jesus at the end of his sermon? He says, the one that you have crucified is the righteous one. Now, why did he choose that name? You need to understand that Jesus is the right one. Jesus is the only one who is acceptable to his father. Jesus is the only one who was enough for you. That's the only one. It's a profound choice of title. And so all of a sudden he's saying in effect, look, the only one who could represent you, the only one who could be the temple for you, the only one who could fulfill the law of Moses in you, you killed him. It's as if he looks at him and he swells up inside and he's like, you cut yourself off from the very thing that you needed the most. And all of a sudden, in that moment, as it were, what wells up in Stephen is, are you ready for this? Pity for his executioners. <laughs> he all of a sudden says, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He speaks just like Jesus. How in the world does Stephen become that kind of person to forgive his, exec his executioners? Well, the answer to that question is my third and final point, and that is because he got a vision of Jesus' advocacy. Look, Stephen is an extraordinary man. It's, no, it's little wonder that his death spurs this incredible missionary surge all the way on the out, out, out of Jerusalem. He's got all this confidence, all this poise, all this power. How did he do it? Well, look at verse 56. It says that Stephen's dying vision was of Jesus. But guess what Jesus is doing? 
Jesus is being a priest for him. Hold this connection here. What he says when he looks up there is he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Hmm, that's interesting. Most of the other pictures that we get of Jesus at the throne have Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father. But now he's standing. What's the deal? Why the change? Well, most of the commentators I consulted brought up what I thought is a fantastic point. And what they say is, is Jesus is standing up and allows Stephen to see him standing up in the same way that a lawyer would stand up when he objects to a point. Up comes the accuser to sort of accuse the defendant. And the lawyer stands up and says, I object. He makes his point known. And so don't you see what Stephen is experiencing here in this moment is he's looking around him at this kangaroo court that's completely condemning him. But as he looks up at Jesus, he sees the heavenly court, which is completely commending him. And all of a sudden, the reality that was there in heaven becomes real, more real even than what's going here on earth. So that all of a sudden, in a prayer that Stephen's likely prayed over and over and over again, things on heaven have become like things on earth. That's a little bit of what we're praying when we say that. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make my life to live on the basis of what it's like to have a perfect advocate, a perfect high priest. Because here's what's, hap- what's crazy. Once I see him being my high priest, I become a priest myself. And all of a sudden, Stephen looks around at the people and he's like, these people have no idea what they're doing. They've cut themselves off from the one source of life. Look, Stephen knows that he has the smile of his king, and all of a sudden what comes out of him is something that you and I could never hold together. Tim Keller makes a wonderful point about how it says that that Stephen was a man who was full of grace and power. It's a little weird. How do you have both of those two things in the same person? Keller says Stephen has the spirit of Christ who is both a lion and a lamb. He says because only the gospel can produce humble boldness. Why? Well, if we're only saved by our good works, we can be bold, but we can't be humble, especially if we feel like we're doing pretty well living up to our standards. Or we can be humble, but we can't be bold when we fail to live up to our standards. He says, but the gospel tells us that we are helpless sinners, which creates a humility that does not go away, but that we're also accepted in Christ, which creates a boldness that doesn't go away. Hence, it produces grace and power. Look, Stephen has learned the secret that is at the gut of every human being. And that is when when things go badly for me, what I do in the Bible's language is I start to look for my priest. I look for a go-between. I look for my enoughness, if you will. And the world comes along and says, ah, lose some weight. Maybe you should pick up a hobby. You know, love the one you're with. I don't know, get wasted, whatever. But the truth is, every one of us knows we're unacceptable as we are. We all know that we're not enough. I mean, come on, in Oxford, we have our temples, do we not? We love our charming, precious, quaint little town. We have our own places. And you know, we have our laws of Moses too. We hold each other to very strict, I don't know, social codes? Oh, political codes? There's a big one. And we use those things, do we not, to judge who's in and who's out? But here's the thing. When you get around a guy like Steve, do you know what happens? You start to get uncomfortable. 
Stephen makes us uneasy. I get a little nervous. I get defensive. And you know what? I might even find a, t- a chance to take a shot at that guy. Because if I can, I can tear him down, and maybe it'll do what I want it to do. But the crazy thing is, Stephen's aren't intimidated by it. They're not. Look, when you feel your foundations ebbing away, that means that your priest is failing you. But what the gospel says to you is don't run away from that feeling. Don't do that because there's real change and freedom there. So I was going through the, I don't know, the, the, the files of my mind of times in which people have been priests to me. And I kept coming back to a conversation I had with my New Testament professor, uh, Knox Chamblin. Went on to become a very dear friend of mine. He actually officiated at Ginger and I's wedding. And I remember my friends and I having lunch with Dr. Chamlin because we wanted to ask him some questions that we couldn't get to in class. And for whatever reason, in the middle of the conversation, I decided that I would take a couple of shots at a guy inside of our class who I deemed to be annoying. And I said something sarcastic, made a joke. I think people around the table kind of laughed. I honestly have no idea if Dr. Chamlin even even said anything. Forgot about it, right? Because that's just what I do. Two days later, Dr. Chamlin, at the end of our class that we had, called me and my friends up to the class. He let everybody else kind of clear out. In the most humble, sweetest of way, he looked at us and he goes, hey, I, I thought about this all the way home the other day, but I feel like I said some uncharitable things about so-and-so at lunch for us the other day, and I just, I feel like I owe y'all an apology and, and hope that you guys will be willing to forgive me. It's Knox Chamlin. We were like, ooh. Totally, 100%, two thumbs up, Knox, whatever. But you know, as I turned and made my way back to my seat, I started thinking, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. I'm the one who said it. <laughs> that was my thing. I'm the one who sort of started that little stir of insult against that person. Now, here's the deal. That little experience for me absolutely blew me away, and there was an impact. There was an impact that would never have happened had Knox walked up and been like, you know less. You said something pretty ugly the other day, and I thought it was pretty terrible. Uh, and I'm wondering if you just want to get your, your, yourself together. You got something you want to say to me? I would have gotten defensive. I would have bowed up. See, that's not how it works. You know what he did? He became a priest to me. What Knox did was he came along and he said, I don't need your respect. So he was free to lay it down. And by God's grace, it melted me, you know. But I'm telling you, I could have gotten angry. I really could have gotten angry and thought to myself, ah, fake piety. What are you talking about? No. But here's the thing. I think that's the choice that's laying in front of you this morning. There's a choice that's laying in front of you this morning when you begin to see Jesus as the great high priest. Is that driving you crazy or is it melting you? Is he coming along and becoming more beautiful to me that I might be drawn to someone who can replace all of these ridiculous things that I set up in his stead? Or is it something that I'm learning to resent and I'm building a case against it. And the little outbursts of anger are not about whether or not it was really a first down. It's not about a bad call in a cricket match. It really wasn't about those things. What it was about was not knowing that my priest was advocating for me. I'm convinced of that, that most of our anger, most of our pushing, most of our irritation most of my anger is coming from a doubt as to whether or not he's really there, of whether I have a priest. Look, priests, priests are people that advocate for you. The priests make you feel big and not small. They, they make you think that your cause is, is their cause. 
Let me put it this way. A priest is a beautiful person because Jesus has made them beautiful. And Jesus has become their beauty for them. And for that reason, they are enough. And that is how the gospel sets you free. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you set us free this morning by giving us the grace of release from all the things that tyrannize us. Because, Father, in our anger, we have lashed out. We have hurt one another. We have become people that are are devouring one another. But you don't want that. You love your image bearers. And so heal us, we pray, by showing us your beauty, even in the singing of this last song. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.